Hi, this is Peter Russell of University of Story. I am a story doctor in Hollywood. I also teach at UCLA and Pepperdine. But at my own school, University of Story, you can find what I'm talking about today. I'm going to be incredibly handsome and charming. He was kind of James Bond. He had a little arrogance, right? He's brave as hell. I'm going to make a ton of money. I'm going to be the most suave, sophisticated guy you could ever meet. Muhammad Ali says he was a better boxer than he was. He's self-righteous. He was a rebel. He's a risk taker. He's a superhero. He's using his bravery for light. But remember, he's got a core wound. All great heroes do. Every story is about that personal wound. It always, it always has been, it always will be. I always ask my class, stand up right now and tell me the most embarrassing thing about yourself you could ever tell anyone, the thing that would make you cringe horribly if anybody knew it. Can you stand up and do that? Of course, no one will. So I do. I stand up and I say, look at my face. And when you look at, and I don't want you to shout this out, but when you look at my face, Tell, pick out the worst feature in my face and the best feature. Don't tell me, because I, I did a Korean television interview a little while ago, and the guy goes, you have a giant mole on your cheek. And I'm like, well, gee, I didn't really want to know that. But just tell me, but just have it in your head. What's my best feature and my worst feature, okay? Now, most people pick one thing out and then the other, and then they start kind of, you know, oh, I don't want to tell them. I know what it is. Now I say, okay, now I'm going to tell you a secret about myself, something really embarrassing. When I was a teenager, I had this problem, and it's, it was a very embarrassing problem. I had something called body dysmorphia. And it, I don't know if you know what that is, but it makes you feel like you either have something too big or too small about your appearance. I had a wound when I was a teenager. Um, my mommy didn't love me, and so because of that, I had body dysmorphia. I thought my lips were the size of Mick Jagger, and that was how my core wound manifested itself. So you can say, well, so what, Peter? That's for a therapist's couch. So that when I would go into a room, I thought everyone was staring at my lips. They were huge. I, I'd knock people over with them. I wouldn't kiss a girl in high school because I was afraid my lips would get wet and then they would look even bigger. So here's what I did about that. All these things came out of that wound in high school for me. One, I wore white chapstick, okay, which made me appear I was wearing lipstick. Now I had long hair and I was in a band. So every time someone would look at me, I'd be thinking, oh, they, they, they're looking at my lips, they're huge. No, they were looking at the fact that that dude has long hair and he's wearing lipstick. He must be gay. That's not what I thought. I would also eat my lunch in the bathroom because I didn't want people to see my wet lips. So you see that this one wound, oh, by the way, I got therapy, I'm over it now. But this one wound was motivating all these things they did. I wouldn't have a girlfriend. I actually, I was a pretty good looking guy in high school, but I couldn't do it because I actually did have some, but it was a horrible experience because every time I'd kiss them, I'd have to use the white chapstick. So you see where I'm going. When I tell people this story, they're like, first of all, they're sort of uncomfortable and then they're, they kind of want to laugh and then they're just interested because it's true. Anything you tell about yourself that's true, that's embarrassing, is fascinating to an audience. Each one of those compensations for my core wound is a great scene in a movie. You can see me hiding in a bathroom, unable to eat in front of other people. You can see me turning the lights out to kiss a girl. You can see me putting on white lipstick, chapstick, because I wanted my mouth to be smaller. So if you can't think up interesting scenes for your movie or your television show, you gotta go into what wounded you 
and what you're doing in secret to compensate for that. We all have secret lives and they're all about compensating for our wounds. That's the action that will make a great story, whether it's film or television. We're not going to be interested in good-looking, perfect people who are making a lot of money and they're great in everything they do. Who gives a shit? We want to see people that we can identify with because that's not us. We've got problems, right? What makes you like someone? When they show you their vulnerability, when they show you that they are screw-ups just like you, this is what great stories do immediately. I've got problems, right? I want to see my problems and somebody else with problems dealing with problems, okay? Embarrassment, um, truth. Ask yourself, and you can do it alone in a room, write down on a piece of paper the 10 most horribly embarrassing things, secrets in your life you would never want anyone ever to know. Now we all have them. You write down 10 of them. You don't ever want to show this to anybody. You don't have to. But those 10 embarrassing personal secrets will fuel almost all the stories you're ever going to tell in your life. Because every story you tell is going to come out of one of those horrible embarrassments because they are what's wounded you. And they start when you're little. And it's usually our parents who wound us. Sometimes it's a dirty old uncle, you know, it, it, sometimes it's a neighbor, but it's usually our parents. So if you can understand what those wounds are, you're going to be able to write 10 compelling characters, all having behaviors that are compensations for that wound. Every great story starts with a character wounded like this, unless it's a superhero. <laughs> that's, a, that's a separate genre that has their own rules. But most of the movies you love, have a hero who's wounded and it comes from the writer himself and the wounds that he has and how he tries to compensate for those. That's the physical manifestations in the story of his behavior. And it makes us empathize with this weird, weird guy because we're all weird, right? We want to know our heroes are weird in story because it means they're real. The truth about yourself on the page is the most important gift you have as a writer. I did an exercise in class where I had said, I will give you $20 if you take your camera and go take a picture of your bathroom right now without moving anything. Or take a picture of your bedroom without moving anything, the real bedroom. No one will do it because it looks awful, their real bedroom. But if you put that up on Facebook, people would love it because that's how you really live. So real stories are about not the fantasy Facebook, but the compelling stories would be if you took a picture of yourself when you just got up, if you took a picture of your bathroom the way it looks right now. That's fascinating. And the best storytellers give you those personal wounds. And I say every storyteller is wounded and they're trying to tell a story to heal that wound. We all have a dozen core wounds. Uh, I'm ugly, my mother didn't love me. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm badly uh, uh, socialized, uh, no one understands me, I go to a party, uh, I, I can't talk to anybody, no one will listen to me, I'm lonely, I'm alone, um, I can't reach out, I'm married but I'm, I, I'm not happy because I really can't be myself. There's all these wounds we all have and we carry them inside ourselves. That's really what we're always writing about, always. 
Uh, and this is true for untherapized writers who are very successful, even if they've never looked at a psychologist's couch and they laugh at this. When I work with them, turns out what they're writing about always is their core wound. So ask yourself as a storyteller, what am, I, what am I interested in? What are the movies I love? I guarantee you when you do that, you'll find out that is your place where you need to start. When you first see a character, you have his wound. Now, what if you're wounded as a person? What have you done? What's your, first of all, ask yourself, what's your biggest wound? Okay, emotionally, what's your biggest embarrassment? Now, what have you done to compensate for that in your life? Let me ask you, what's your deepest, most personal embarrassing secret? I'll tell you when the camera's <laughs> There's, there's exactly. more than one. Uh, exactly. But if you were to tell me now, I would love hearing it. Why? My only sense would be because then you could measure your own against what I'm telling That's you. That's right. And then go, I guess I'm not that bad after all, maybe. Only, or I'm not alone. Okay. I'm, you're, in, you're in pain. So am I. Now I understand you. Now I empathize with you. Now you're, you're like me. Now it's a story about me. It's not some wonderful person who's leading a perfect life that I might fantasize about and enjoy as a reality show um, or a Kardashian show, but it's the deeper part of our lives, which is I'm in pain. I, I, I don't have everything I want. Are you like me? Oh my God, you are? Thank you. Now I'll follow you because if you can get better, I can get better. Empathizing with the character is all about confession. If you'll notice in a great story, confession of your core wound or showing the core wound is something that happens almost immediately in great stories. You want to show the character's wound and his compensation often in the first 10 minutes of the show. In a movie, that's certainly true. The quicker you show it, the better the empathy will be for it, for the audience. Don't hide it. Guys, if you want to give us sympathy for your hero, show his core wound or her core wound immediately. Show it in the first minute of the story. If you've ever gotten a note that says, mm, your hero isn't sympathetic, it's because you're not showing their core wound. What makes you like someone? Not because they're rich or famous or strong. That doesn't want. What makes you like someone? When they show you their vulnerability, when they show that they are screw ups just like you. This is what great stories do immediately. And this is what core wounds always do. This is why it's the nuclear reactor of a great character. There's three kinds of action heroes. There is the rites of passage hero who heals his wound through the course of the movie. This is Iron Man. There is the uh, uh, there is the superhero. This is Leonidas in 300. He never really has an emotional change. By the way, that can also be a villain superhero like Jake uh, uh, Johansson in, not Jake Johansson, he's a comic. Um, <laughs> or it can be the kind of villain that you have with Jake Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler. He never really changes. He just gets stronger and stronger as a villain. You also have a third kind of action hero, and that is the hero we're going to talk about today, the anti-hero. Now, he's the guy who starts out good, but becomes evil for sympathetic reasons. Sympathetic is actually more important than likability. If you look at Tony Soprano, he's a good example. Um, it's old now, but I think it's the most brilliant television ever made. 
I, I think if you haven't seen Sopranos, you should watch it, okay? Because it's still the most brilliant. It's like Shakespeare. Tony Soprano is a murderer. He's a horrible human being. And yet we love him. Why? We love him because he's got this deep wound in him and it comes from his mother and the entire first season of the sopranos is about this horrible mother and how awful she is to tony and even though when he tries to kill her on the gurney when she they're rolling her out of the out of the nursing home and she's going <laughs> he's trying literally trying to get her with a pillow our sympathies are with tony why well, here's a big secret of the anti-hero, which I'll tell you, which I talked about earlier. Anti-heroes are great guys who turned bad for sympathetic reasons, right? For sympathetic reasons. Michael Corleone becomes a horrible man. Why? He's saving his dad. He's saving his family, right? Tony Soprano is a horrible guy, but we like him. Why? Because he wants to save his family. He wants, the first season of Tony Soprano, as we've seen him, he's, the ducks are leaving his pond. His kids are leaving the nest, right? He's trying to get his mom saved into a, into a home. She's like, ah, leave me alone. You're a horrible human being. So the great secret of an antihero is to make the villains and the people around them worse and less likable than the hero themselves. So Tony Soprano's mom is the most miserable, horrible human being ever conceived on television. And Jay says that. He's based on his own mom. But so we love Tony because his mom is just so awful. And we think, God, poor guy. No wonder he turned into a murdering psychopath. His mom is awful. So that's the critical thing about uh, making someone sympathetic. And, and also likable, yes, it's important, but to make them sympathetic, you simply make uh, the other people around them worse. Michael Corleone had to save his dad. Nobody else would do it. His brother couldn't do it. He had these terrible villains around him that, that were shooting his entire family. He had to save his family. And in doing so, he eventually lost his family, right? Just like Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano ends up killing his nephew, ends up killing people all around him, probably ends up uh, having his, somebody shot in that final restaurant scene around him. But we have great sympathy for him because we see his wounds. The wounds are everything. Wounds are why we love a character. And if when you first start out writing a story, you should show me your hero or your character's wounds the second they get on screen. The second they're on screen, show me the wound. That's how you get somebody to be likable. You get the note, your character's not likable, which you get all the time from a producer. That's how to make them likable. Can show them bleeding. Whenever you get a note like, he's not sympathetic, what it really means is he's not believable. Why are we sympathetic to a character? Because we understand him. That's why confession's important. But having sympathy for a character, we can sympathize with a complete a-hole, but it has to be believable, right? So when somebody gives you a note, character's not sympathetic, don't understand, what they're really saying is they're boring. Again, figure out why they're acting the way they do and look at why they're damaged. Give yourself five ways a character is compensating 
for their wound. That's always a way to make them believable, to make them deep. The secret of great story is to make us empathize with someone who's doing bad things. All great story comes from these kinds of confessions, I call them. This is a device you use to make your hero compelling. It's a confession of some embarrassment that you had in your life. We love to see that because we're all embarrassed. We all feel these wounds. We all have them. And when we see them in a story, we recognize them as real, and we love that person, and we want that person. We're rooting for that person. But it's compelling to watch someone confess. Confession is riveting. Whenever I confess a personal wound of mine in a classroom, everybody's going, I've been talking a long time. Everyone just stops. There's total silence in the room. They're looking at me. They want to know. And this is why you can't lie about your core wound, because that's what people want to do. Oh, geez, I can't say the truth, so I'm going to make something up. Uh, let me see. Uh, yeah, okay. My mom molested me when I was four. You can't make it up. Why? Because we have infinitely good bullshit detectors as audiences. We will know. I can always tell in a story when someone's telling me something that isn't true or isn't their experience. We know immediately. You've got to tell the truth or audiences will be bored. So whatever your pain is, you can't lie. It's the truth that makes people want to watch you. Oh, you're going to tell me something that's gossip? Oh, I want to hear. Why? Because it's embarrassing, it's true, and it's weird. That's every great story. Every scene's about the core wound and about how you're either curing it or making it worse. And every character in a movie is only ripping at the wound or healing it. That's all it is. Movies are just, uh, think, of, uh, think of a movie story as a, 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 a boxing ring and the hero jumps into the ring, but he's bleeding. He starts out bleeding. And the whole movie is just people jumping in with bandages to help him heal, or people jumping in with knives to rip it wider open. In a television story, that just continues for season after season. But it's the same thing. Oh, usually only one wound. Um, people often think uh, that they can, they get excited about the whole idea of a core wound, which they should, because it really gives you an original character. But when we in real life, by the way, we have a dozen wounds, right? I mean, you know, like, let's talk about mine or not. But everybody has more than one wound. Sure. But movies and to some extent television, they have more lead, are simple, okay? So you want to sort of see uh, uh, one big uh, wound. Uh, but then, yes, many desires come out of that, you know? Um, Tony Soprano had one big wound, my mommy hates me. What do we do when we have a core wound? We compensate and we do it in bad ways. But a bunch of desires came out of that, you know? I love prostitutes, <laughs> I love working at a strip club, I love hurting people, uh, I love to be violent, um, you know, I, I, I love to run things, I love being a boss, you know, I love being a, a dad. I like, so, so you can have many desires. Just know that all the desires come out of the wound, and they're often unhealthy, okay? They're often unhealthy desires. That's what you want to see. If they were healthy, there'd be no show. So, uh, especially in television, you get wounded, and then you do a lot of unhealthy things. I bet there's something you did in the last 24 hours that you would hate any of us to see. Some 
terribly embarrassing thing about yourself, some pain about yourself. You need to write about the pain and pleasure and the dreams you have of your own life. Don't say that's a cliche. Every great movie ever made comes from that passion, comes from the writer's passion and love for that story. There's only seven stories in the world. They've all been told a thousand times. The only thing you've got as a writer is your passion, your love, your experience. That's what makes you different than anybody else and what makes your story different from anybody else. And people can, people I see hipsters who go, yeah, that's not true. I'm going to make them, I'm going to make a cool story about violence. It's just about guns. It's just about knives. It's about the cool stuff that happens. And I'm going to say, you're going to fail. That's not going to succeed. Tarantino doesn't make movies like that. He makes movies that speak to him from his heart that are from his secret desires, our secret desires, our secret pleasures, our secret pains. That's what motivates all great story, always, and it always will. That's all you've got as a human being. That's the way it's been. That's the way it's always going to be. But now we return to the A story, which is this. Everybody gets told you suck at the beginning, and most people hear it and go, you know what, I guess I do and they quit. Everybody gets told it though. Even the ones that are really talented get told it. But the ones that don't hear it, or the ones that just go, yeah, I don't, I don't suck, I'm, I'm good. That arrogance, that confidence, or whatever you want to call it, it might be, you know, uh, it might be a neurosis. Maybe it's because they're sick, I don't know. But that's, in my experience, when I look at who succeeds, They've got this rhinoceros hide and they persist. They persist when most sane people would say, hey, go back to Missouri. You know, you've got credit card debt. You've been trying for bump years, right? You're never going to make it, right? Listen to your cousin. Listen to your mother. Listen to your accountant who's been telling you for years what a stupid thing it is you're doing. Go back home, you're done. Those people go back home, and guess what? They're done. But the person who doesn't listen, hey, they might end up under a bridge too, because you do need talent. It, 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 this is not a job for someone who has no talent. But most people, I, I think, and I'm not sure about anything in life, but from my observation, most people fail because they don't persist. Now, here's, but you have to actually do the work. I know several people who have failed because they want to be writers, but they don't actually write. They, they think about writing every day, and they say they're writing a script, but they don't actually sit down and write every day. Now, those people, they can fail too, because they're really not trying. They have a dream, but they're not trying. Peter, so how do I get an agent? How do I get a manager, right? That's a question you get asked all the time. And I think the greatest way to answer that is, well, why don't you ask yourself, how do I be good, okay? How do I be a good writer? Because if you become a good writer, then you can probably get an agent or a manager. You should never write to the market. Uh, the market will always horrify you. Um, right now, it's selling our superhero stories uh, to the studios. Um, but if you don't like writing superhero stories, you shouldn't say, oh, well, I'm gonna write one anyway, because you'll fail. Um, you have to write from passion. In my experience, um, yes, even writers who are professionals. I have to say my, uh, um, my, my, my lovely bride, Susie, is a very successful writer in South Africa. 
and uh, we can cut this if she doesn't want me to tell, <laughs> tell this story. <laughs> but she's very successful uh, in South Africa as a writer. She has a, a column and uh, she's created her own voice. I mean, she came here and she started um, studying television. And oh gosh, she's frowning at me. I probably shouldn't say this. Anyway, she's saying, my God, this is hard. And, 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 and it is hard. So film and television structure is difficult. You're not a genius, you just are obsessed. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what I did for, for seven years. I was a script reader, which is a great way to learn how to tell a movie and television story because you're breaking it down and you're analyzing. I teach this at uh, UCLA and at my own school, Peter Russell, scriptdoctor.com. That's Peter Russell, scriptdoctor.com for all your story needs. And the story has just begun. But this one, uh, I'd love to play it for you if you don't mind. Sure. Okay, great, great. I know this sort of feels like a Senate hearing, but it's not. I just, I just. <laughs> I, I didn't do anything criminal. Oh, good. I, no, I remember no. that. I've right. got my lawyer here anyway. <laughs> good, good. Okay, no, this is about. We'll keep it on screenwriting here, and okay. we have a great yeah. clip to play. So here we go. Whoops, and that I'm no good at it. Um, the reason that I'm a teacher and a consultant and a story doctor is that I, my big secret is I don't enjoy writing screenplays. I tried for a while to do it, but it's not my thing. I, I, if poetry paid, I'd be in the chips, because I'm a poet. <laughs> That's what I love to write. And I also like to write novels. But years ago, the reason I became what I am is, um, I failed to complete a screenplay. It got huge interest, it really, and I realized at the end of it, it says, I don't like this form. It's just not for me. I love analyzing it. I love understanding how it works. I love helping other people do it. But I don't enjoy sitting down every day and writing in the screenplay form. It's not my thing. Okay. Yeah. Great. So that was four years ago. Yeah. And what I found from, from an email from you is that you've actually completed uh, a, a historical TV series? Yeah, and I still hate writing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so nothing's changed. I'm always going to hate it. Okay. I, I was just telling Susie yesterday, God, I hate this. Um, I, but I'll tell you, yes, I've had some success. And what's great about that is, is that it's... Here, here's the really great thing. Because when you're a teacher, you don't really know for sure. My stuff actually helps. It actually turns out to work. <laughs> the stuff I've been teaching actually has helped me, which is a huge relief because when you're a teacher, you're often up there and it's easy to pontificate and say, oh, do this and this form, try this tool. And, but most, some of my tools were terrible, but a lot of them actually worked. But I still hate writing. And I, I, that's always probably going to be the case. And I think maybe there are some writers who don't hate writing, who they just love it and they get 10 in the morning and I can't wait to get to the desk. But I'm always going to loathe it. Um, but it is, I guess I'm good enough at it now to get paid. And so I'll do it. It's, it's actually fun to get paid. Yeah. And, and it's fun to know that your stuff's actually going to be out there. It's two opposite things needing to fulfill a very rigorous disciplined structure and having the personality of a rebellious miscreant who hates convention and can't stand following the rules, right? Those two elements are often necessary for a creator and it's why creators are all crazy. 
right? Because those are opposites, you know? I mean, rebels and rule followers are usually on the opposite end of a scale. So to be able to combine those two, that makes you crazy. I, I see that all the time. I, I think it really is true that a lot of people in this business are insane. I'm kind of insane myself. Uh, I, think it, I think it's almost required to have a kind of schizophrenia to be a successful creator, um, a commercially successful creator. It's, it's not it's not easy and so many of my students are rebels and so when they come into this process and I'm start showing we start showing them tools they're like yeah that's gonna make my story a cliche um, and and the fact is the most rebellious rule-breaking directors uh, like like Tarantino um, they they use these tools the subjects they write they, they show are where they rebel they show subjects that are crazy, that you wouldn't ever really be interested in, but the tools they use are classical, are, are powerful, are rigorous, and they employ them with the precision of an engineer. In other words, long story short, not anymore, but I really can use my tools to solve story problems that I'm getting paid to solve. So. When they work, I'm so excited, I'm so ecstatic. It, it means all the 20 years I've spent doing this is actually paying off for me. And also, now I have a little bit more credibility uh, in when I teach, right? Because the rap on teachers is, well, you can teach what you can't do, right? Yeah, that's what you're teaching, you're not doing. Okay, I get it. Well, now I'm doing. So I, I can say, okay, well, yeah, but these tools actually do work, so shut up. <laughs> Shut up, I, 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 I did it, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> we have a structural tool called the BMOC, which is beginning, middle, obstacle, and climax. These are the four points in any great story where the hero's asked to change. And they're in every great story, whether it's Star Wars, or The Fault in Our Stars, or uh, uh, um, Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift. I found this out years ago, analyzing all movies, that it was an equal MC square moment for me. There are four crescendos in a movie where the hero is asked to change and asked to learn the theme of the movie and asked to learn how to heal. All the things I talk about, the big things I talk about, healing, learning the theme, um, stopping bleeding, all that. There's four times in a movie story, inevitably, that that happens at a crescendo. It's at 30 pages in, 60 pages in, 90 pages in, and about 108 pages in. Those I call the beginning, middle, obstacle, climax, the BMOC, right? Now that's a structure that is in every great movie practically you've ever seen. It's not in a Godard movie, okay? If you're writing a French wave movie, I'm sorry, I won't be able to help you. That's just a French guy peeing in an alley for two hours, and that's great, right? I love those movies, but, th but in, a, in, a, in a Hollywood film, um, that structure is invariably in the story, and if it's not, there's usually something missing. It'll be superseded someday, but that's what's operating now. Now, that BMOC operates in everything. Why does structure matter so much in television? It matters because people in television have a short attention span.
and you need to give them many different story plots because they're also arguing with their girlfriend, they're also looking at their cell phone, their dog wants to get out, and they're also in a bed that they're uncomfortable in. And they're probably emailing somebody, right? All of that's happening when you watch television. It's not true in a movie theater. Just like a pop song, no matter how cool or hipster, has a chorus, a bridge, a verse structure, right? Kanye does, and you know, uh, Ry Cooter does. They all do. Why? Because the human brain is wired to have a certain set of beats in any narrative form. There's three levels of story plot. Okay, stay with me, guys. This is a little complicated, but you need to know this because Mr. Robot has them all. And the reason they have them is the mystery thriller audience wants to be baffled. You ever seen anybody who loves to do crosswords? They're looking at the New York Times crossword puzzle, and what are they doing? They're going, oh, oh, oh my God, oh my God, oh, I don't think I can solve it. Oh, Peter, I don't think I can solve it. Oh my God. What is that? That's the adrenaline that comes from well, you looking at a puzzle, not being able to solve it. Then when they do solve one, what do they do? They go, ah! Oh! They get a kind of a dopamine high. It's a kind of an orgasm because they have now solved the mystery. That's all mystery thriller does for you. It poses a mystery and then it lets you solve it, okay? Not my genre. When I went to Inception, I was like, what the hell's happening? I'm going to go. I'm going to leave the theater. But the mystery thriller audience loves that mystery. Now, that means they crave a complicated story. So there's three stories in mystery thrillers. There is the distraction plot. That is what you see quickly in act one. That looks like the real crime that's going on in the story, but it's actually just a distraction. The second plot is the emotional change in the hero that helps him solve the crime. And the third plot is the real crime, what's really going on. That does not get revealed till act five in the story. Now, it's hidden. People say, ah, Hollywood's so formulaic is, they're looking at bad, unimaginative stories with characters you've seen a thousand times, with situations you've been in a thousand times, with with, with in a world you've seen a thousand times. Set, but the structure, the commercial structure, is there because it's beautiful. The bones are beautiful. You can take different bones out, put other bones in, but there's an appeal below the surface of beauty. If you look at what we consider to be beauty, uh, if you took a, a, a skeleton, you'd see there was a conformity to the bone structure. Now you can put whatever you want on top of that bone structure. You can make uh, the person uh, uh, a Tunisian. You can make them Indian. You can make them American Indian. You can make them whatever you want. But the bones below that determines whether or not they're beautiful. I think structure of story is like the bones beneath the, 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 the face. It's what we're instinctively drawn to as human beings, and that doesn't change. But what changes, what makes things unique are, is it a new world? Are these characters we haven't seen before? Is this guy have a wound that we haven't seen before? And remember, we have three plots in a mystery thriller. I know I'm talking a lot about this. I know it's confusing. You can watch this several times. The plot in a mystery thriller that's really critical is that there's an emotional change in the hero throughout the story that helps him solve the crime. That's the key in all great mystery thrillers, whether it's movies or television. If you don't have good news, bad news, raising stakes, and, and, and uh, uh, ticking clocks on every page of your story, your story's gonna be boring. 
Guys, we're not going to have time today to talk about the four-act structure in television, but it's important that you know what it is. It's seven different beats per act. The A storyline has 15 to 16 of these beats. The B has seven to eight. The C has three to four, and the D has three. Why do I talk about this if I'm not really going to talk about it? Because you need to look at my television lecture or somebody else's television lecture to make you understand that every act, every hour-long drama has this same structure. No matter how crazy you are and how much you want to break the rules, the reason it's there is to entertain the audience in a rhythm like a pop song has a bridge, a chorus, a verse, even the craziest ones, right? They all do because it entertains the audience. So, we're not going to talk about that all now, but you need to understand that's true. And each beat has a hero, an antagonist, and a fight inside the beat. A beat is two to three minutes long. It is a single dramatic act, and there's 28 of them in a hour-long television show. And they're cheap tricks, by the way. It's good news. Uh, uh, I'm giving you 20 bucks. Bad news, I'm slapping you. Uh, ticking clocks is just a bomb, a, a bomb ticking down. It's a gun pointed at someone. These are not sophisticated tricks. They're simple. But the greatest artists use them in all of their best work. In California, we have these, these uh, uh, vanity license plates, right? And, and in a vanity license plate, I think you get seven letters, right? And in that seven letters, you've got to be witty, okay? <laughs> you can't go, oh man, you know what? It's such a cliche to have seven letters. My vanity plate's going to have 42. Because if you, take, if you make the vanity plate 42 characters long, it's not going to be funny when you say, you know, uh, uh, if you have a seven-letter word uh, uh, that says, let's say you're driving a Corvette and your seven letters are two inches, right? Okay? <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Yes, 70. got me to laugh. If it was a 42-letter plate, you'd go, hey, I drive a vet because I have a small penis. Is that funny? <laughs> no. No, not Because the form is too big. So commercial form is what we delight in. We want to, the limitations of commercial form produce the, the entertainment, right? The fact that it's a half an hour means you must cram certain things in it. And the delight of an audience in a commercial art form is, how are they gonna cram something we've never heard about and is witty into this limited commercial form? That's what commercial art does. Mentors heal heroes' core wounds. That's what they're for. And that's what he's gonna start doing. Now in television, they don't heal completely, but they heal a little bit. What we wanna see in a story is a hero learning to heal, and even if he doesn't heal completely, because he doesn't in TV, he's still going to go on a journey towards healing a little bit. The critical difference between film and television is in TV, the hero doesn't heal, but he heals a little bit, and then at the end he gets ripped open again. So every week he's going to heal a little bit and then get ripped open again. Every week, 150 times. But the BMOC works at the exact same places in a television hour than it does in a movie. There's just an extra M <laughs> because there's an extra act. So let's take a four-act television structure. The BMOC, it's B-M-M-O-C. The O-C, the obstacle point, is the point when it looks like the hero is going to lose. And in a movie, this is right at the 90-page point. Let's take a movie everybody knows, Star Wars. 
Uh, Luke gets to the planet, the last rebel planet. Uh, uh, Darth has followed him there with a homing beacon. He's got a Death Star. He's going to blow up the whole damn thing. There's nothing Luke can do about it. There's just a little few starfighters, and he's got a Death Star. That's it. The movie's over. And then, of course, what happens? Hey, I stole the plans of the Death Star. There's a little hole you can fill a missile in if you really get close. And Luke, you can be the only one to get that missile in that hole if you use the Force, not your computer. And so the obstacle point is all is lost. And the climax is Luke learns the theme of the story. Luke, will you use the Force to rescue the princess and save the Republic? He puts his computer away. All the other starfighters used it. They couldn't get the missile in. He puts his computer away. He's learned. He hears Obi-Wan say, Luke, use the force, not the computer. And he puts the missile in the hole. Climax. So the obstacle point is always lost. And the climax is, Luke, you did it. In Breaking Bad, the obstacle point is... He's making meth in the desert. Jesse comes back out with uh, uh, Crazy Eight and the other uh, criminal. They're going to kill them both. Waltz in his underwear. He has no defense. He's going to get shot and killed. But then he says, I'll teach you. I'll teach you how to cook. I'll teach you how to cook my recipe. And the guy goes, really? Yes. And they go in the RV. And Walter throws poison into the thing. Whoosh! And the climax is he kills them both and becomes the mass murderer he's going to be for the next 150 episodes. So that's the climax. So the O and the C point, and I'm not explaining this well, I'm sorry, but it's in my lecture online. It's a complex little tool, but it works so great. It's like a little engine that works any television structure you want, just like it did in film. So what did I learn when I started learning about television? Everything I learned in movies works. Every element that I learned about in movies works in television. The structure is just a little more complicated, that's all. Does everybody know what a logline is? Because a logline in television and a logline in movies is very different. In a movie logline, you're telling the story of how someone changes, the hero. In television, you're simply showing the hero's goals and his obstacles in the way. It's a very different logline. I urge you, if you're writing television, to do what we call breaking the A story logline over and over again because it's literally creating your story by asking yourself, what is my story, and putting it in a frame. That's what makes great story. Well, in television, if the heroes don't heal, then why do we want to watch them? Because they're going to surprise us with new character revelations. Anybody remember that great moment in The Sopranos when Janice and Richie, who are about to get married, are having a quiet evening at home and she's cooking him dinner and they're both irritated, but it's just another night. Suddenly, Janice starts irritating Richie. Suddenly, Richie starts irritating Janice. And suddenly, Richie hits her. He backhands her. He's never done that before. Now they're about to get married. That's a big surprise. We've never seen Richie do that before. It's not a change in his character. It's a revelation because we have a new conflict. She's irritated him. And we also can see that this is going to be the way it's going to be for the rest of their marriage. He's setting her up to get hit every night. And then he sits down to have his dinner. And he says, what are you going to do, cry now? And he starts eating. Now, Janice is about to surprise us a lot because Janice walks out of frame. When she comes back, she's got a gun. He looks at her and he sneers. Janice, I've got no time for this. Boom! And she kills him right there. Now, that's 
not Janice healing, for God's sakes, or really even changing. She's just showing us a new facet of Janice as a badass. That is the critical way television heroes give us excitement. And it's why we want to watch television, not to see them heal or even get worse. Because we all believe really the world's both, that it's got poison in it and it's also got good in it. 90% of the time, um, it's about a hero who doesn't have a change, a compelling change. The hardest job for a script writer, and actually for a producer, or a director, anybody involved in a story, is to make a really cool character that you might think is great. You might have a really cool setting. Wow, that's neat. We're in the South Pacific. You've never seen that before. And this is a cool character. But they don't know how to change him how to take him from one place to another. So time and again, what I do is talk about that, point out this guy isn't changing, or if he is changing, it's not believable. Um, uh, and, and so when a bad movie is bad, often it's because this hero's change is not there, it's not real, it's not compelling. Um, and sometimes you'll have a wonderful setting and you'll have a wonderful hero, but he just doesn't change correctly. A movie logline is about a hero who changes. It's the entire story of the movie from the perspective of the hero. Well, let's say that her change needs to be, let's make it a personal story. Let's say that she doesn't have love, okay? So she's wounded. Um, most great Hollywood movies are about a wounded hero given a chance to change, okay? That's what they are. So let's say that the reason she's wounded is that her wound, and it's always about a wound in a story that's any good. We all have wounds. I call them core wounds. Uh, our parents usually gave them to us. So let's say that her wound is that she can't connect to anybody, okay? She can't be intimate with anybody. She just doesn't feel it. So she's a bartender, so really she doesn't have to ever have intimate relationships. She just has lots of relationships with the people at the bar. But they never go any further than that, okay? If she has uh, 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 any intimacy at all. Well, she doesn't, and she's not intimate with her family either. Okay, so what's going to change her? What's going to make her change? Well, you have people who are going to tear her wound wider open. Let's say that that's the owner of the bar who doesn't want her to change at all, loves the way she is, uh, and, and, and tells her now, though, that, hey, we're changing our bar. Our bar is going to become a coffee house, and it's going to be really important that you talk to the people who come in. That's going to be, as a barista, I want you to really establish friendships, and it's all about that. And by the way, here comes someone who's a consultant who's going to help you change uh, and be more friendly and also more intimate with the clients. Well, she really will hate that. She'll hate that. She'll want to quit, but she can't quit. She makes so much money doing this. Um, so then you're going to have also uh, a person on the other side. You're going to have a, let's call her, uh, an impact character who's a relative who says to her, hey, your sister's getting married. And I'm making this a personal story. Your sister's getting married, and your sister wants you to come to the wedding, and she also wants you to help me make this card up that, that it's a whole family and everybody's in it, and our, our heroine resists that too. No, I don't want to do that at all. I, I don't want to be involved in the family. I don't even know these people. So right there you have this personal setup where you have a girl with a core wound who's I can't be intimate, and you have her put in a position where she's going to be forced to have to be intimate or she's going to wind up in a tragedy. And then you give a villain into the story. And the villain is a guy 
who is just as disconnected from people as she is. And he tells her, you know what, let's just have sex, nothing else, no intimacy at all. And she says, great, that's fantastic. Oh, I finally found the person of my dreams. But as we get into the second act, she begins to fall in love with this guy. And she also begins to realize when she's in that bar that she's beginning to feel the lack of intimacy and, and it's hurting her that she can't connect to people. So she's learning from this person who's there as a consultant how to connect because she's bonding with her. At the same time, she's falling in love with this villain who is going to now tell her when she reaches out to him, I don't want to be with you. In fact, I've got a family, so goodbye. That's going to push her to change, to heal, to reach out, to understand she needs intimacy. So in the third act, the third act will be all about her helping her sister's wedding, reaching out when her sister, say, goes into crisis and says, suddenly I have cold feet. I don't want to get married. Now our heroine's going to have to minister to her and say, wait a minute, I think you should because intimacy is good. I've just learned it's good. And I'm going to tell you, one of the times in your life you've been happiest, haven't they been with other people? So she's actually learned through pain and learned through the fact of being rejected by someone just like her, a mirror, that she does need intimacy, that she does need to reach out and be with people. Now that's a very small story, very emotional, intimate story. In the end, she reaches out to her family, but she doesn't have to fall in love. This is an indie movie. This is a cool kind of movie. All she has to have is a small change toward understanding, I need intimacy. I need it. And in fact, that's the story of Up in the Air. That's a very famous movie with George Clooney. It's all about, and it's a character study. It's just about this guy who's disconnected from people, who by being pushed by villains and also pushed by helpers, learns how to become connected to people. That's Now, if it was a superhero story, um, and, or if it was a tragedy, in the end she wouldn't learn that, she wouldn't have a change, she'd try to change, but then because she fell in love with someone who was a bad teacher, she would be so crushed that in the end she retreats and decides she's not going to love, she's going to go back to the bar, and there's no movement at all. That's a tragedy. In fact, that's the story of The Wrestler uh, that was a, a, a great movie a few years ago tries to change, looks like they're going to change, but has a mentor that's so bad that when the mentor uh, uh, rejects them and moves away, they simply fall back into their old patterns. And in The Wrestler, he goes back to wrestling and he dies. So you can build the story either way. It's all about who's there on the journey with them, impacting them, that tells you and shows you and them whether or not they're going to be able to heal and change or if they're gonna fall back into a tragic end. Come on, baby, get in the seraglio. Do it our way. <laughs> you can still be original. <laughs> Most writers have strong suits and, and suits that aren't as strong. And character change has to be at the heart of almost every kind of movie, unless you're making a superhero movie where the hero doesn't have a change. And other things have to happen there. But So it's a long-winded way of telling you that. To change your character in a story is everything. And that's what I do if it's not there. But the superhero is huge now. And so the superhero model involves a, a very particular tool. We can talk about it at some point. I don't know if I want to go into it now. But what I decided was, because several people had taken a pass at, at Jack Johnson, 
and I think someone actually is uh, um, making a movie of him now, very big. But, and I don't think I'm giving away anything here, secrets-wise. Um, a superhero, the reason a superhero is fun to watch is not for the same reason most heroes are fun to watch. Most heroes are fun to watch because they're wounded and they've got some big bleeding wound and, and, and we're going to watch them heal it. We're going to watch, that's the story. Superheroes, no. Superheroes are not wounded. They're superheroes, um, often. The old-fashioned superhero. The, uh, in 300, Leonidas, Zack Snyder's 300, Leonidas, he doesn't have a wound. It's like, oh, my mommy hurt me, and I, I, I got to figure out how to do that. No. In 300, he's an old-fashioned superhero because all the reason we want to watch an old-fashioned superhero is to see if he can lift the bigger weight that the villain's putting on him. At the four crucial points of the story, the villain just gets bigger and says, hey, you, you, you could lift that 300 pounds, huh? Think of the villain in a superhero as a deranged trainer at Gold's Gym. And, and you, he says, all right, so you're going to lift 300 pounds, all right? Or you did that, okay. So at the 30-page point, you lifted the 300 pounds. Okay, 60-page point, we're going to put 900 pounds on there. Can you lift that? So the superhero, uh, secret of a superhero story, that kind of superhero story, there's several kinds, is that can he lift the bigger weight the villains put on that rack? That's it. It's not about psychology. It's not about core wounds. What does that tell us? Remember I said that a hero is misusing his superpower at the beginning of the story. And sometimes your superpower, and in television, that's another thing you need to know. Usually in television, your hero has a superpower. And usually that superpower, especially at the beginning, is being used for wrong reasons, bad purposes. For instance, Don Draper in Mad Men has a superpower. He's insanely seductive, okay? He, and he's seductive as a womanizer, and he's seductive as an ad man. But it comes from the fact that his mommy didn't love him, right? He feels unlovable. So all the things he does, he uses his superpower for bad reasons, because he's wounded. He seduces women, right? He, he uh, does ad campaigns for cigarettes and horrible things, and, and he's amoral as an ad man because he's misusing the superpower. But the superpower came from his wound. If he hadn't been wounded, I'm not lovable, he would have never become a great seducer. He wouldn't have needed to. So the, the superpower is related to the wound, but the, but the, but the, the things he wants come out of the unhealthy uh, desires uh, of him trying to make the wound go away, trying to feel better about the wound. In a story, it's about people's flaws and their embarrassments and their pain. There's nine questions I always ask when I'm, when I'm first talking to some other TV show. First of all, what does TV do? It gives us a great world. We need a great world because we're going to be in it for 150 episodes, right? So what's a great world, right? I, I would do an exercise where I say to you, you give me a great world and don't tell me it's New York City. I, I want to know a specific neighborhood of New York City. What's the great world? Because great television is always about a great world. Now, uh, if you want to talk about New York, then give me a specific world in it. Like there's a show called Billions 
And this show is brilliantly written. It's probably the best television out there right now. And it's all about billionaires, how they make their money and how they live their fascinating lives, right? Uh, another fascinating world, the assassination of Gianni Versace. That was a world of Versace, a uh, fashion world in Miami. And then this guy who became a serial killer, his world, and never seen it before. Um, so Carbon Black is this really cool sci-fi show. Uh, it's about a cool to the future where people can change bodies, right? Uh, so they have sleeves, they call it. So your world, you want to ask yourself, what is the world of your show? Atlanta is probably the coolest show on television right now. And it's all about this African-American uh, milieu of middle class, lower middle class Atlanta and this sort of slacker guy in it and how he's going to survive in this slacker world. Never seen it before Stranger Things. Um, that's the world of the 80s. And that's big nostalgia for kids that are 20, 30 right now. It, people on their bikes without helmets. <laughs> uh, uh, television sets that were tubes uh, with rabbit ears. Uh, so the world there is absolutely about the nostalgia, yeah? So big question, what's your world? That's what we want to see. Fantasy continues to be big. Um, I hate it, but zombie is a world that just continues to be true. True blood, vampires romance continues to be good. Black comedy world of shameless, uh, white trash. So worlds are extraordinarily important in your show. Uh, the next question I ask is, do you have a, um, do you have a theme that matters? What do you want to say about the world in your television show? For instance, a, a, a show like um, uh, 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 Sons of Anarchy, which is a great world, the world of motorcycle show. The theme is, if you have a bad mom or dad, you're going to be screwed. <laughs> you need to have a good parent. You need to be mentored. Well, he's not. And that means that the entire show is about how the hero of the show fails because he doesn't have a good mom and dad. His dad's dead. His mom's horrible. And, and so this truth about life is often what hipsters ignore when they're writing a story. They're like, ah, I want to write this story. I call it the weed and speed. It's going to be sort of motorcycles and violence and razor blades and people smoking crack. And, and I'm like, okay, great. Ten minutes. I'll love it. Then what's the truth about life you're saying? Sons of Anarchy, Kurt Sutter's brilliant writer. Why? Because he's got a theme that this hero, hero who drives a motorcycle, who's tough, who does all the things that you're saying you want to see, the violence, the sex, the motorcycles, all that stuff. But every episode is about this guy struggling with the fact he doesn't have a dad. What? How do I live my life without a dad or a mom? And he never figures it out. And he's screwed because of it. So theme answers the question in Orange is the New Black, which is a brilliant show. What's the theme? Well, you better know yourself. Piper can't doesn't know if she likes girls or boys. And the whole show is about, oh, do I like guys? Do I like girls? I don't know. Who am I? I don't know. You tell me who I am. So that's a great theme, too. So Downton Abbey has a theme, which is that the lower class is rising and we have to understand how it's rising. That's the theme of every episode of Downton Abbey, okay? So theme is in Strutting in, in The Wire, which is probably the most, the intellectual's uh, a wet dream of a show, The Wire. David Simon, in his story Bible, and that's something you should also have when you're pitching a story, um, 
His message is this. This story, I'm going to read this because this is in the front page of the Story Bible. This story is about the human condition, about it's not just a police show, it's a show about how we have taken the urban uh, uh, underclass and have jailed them and tormented them and torn them apart in our stupid drug war. Okay? That's his theme. And it's a social theme. And that motivates every, every uh, uh, one of those uh, episodes. So if you don't have that and it works even in a sitcom, you're not going to have a show that works. So what are you passionate? What do you believe in? I ask my students this sometimes. What do you believe in? Like, I don't know. I mean, that's not important. I'm going to write a hip story. No, you're not. You're going to bore us. Uh, the next question is, why do we want to watch the show every week? Okay, every week we got to watch a show, 100 episodes. So you need a great question, right? In Breaking Bad, what's the great hook question every week? How bad's Walter going to break? What's he going to do this week? Oh, God, he's going to be even worse. Okay, uh, making a murderer. Hey, did, did he do it or not? That's a pretty good question, yeah? Every week we get that. Orange is a new black. Is Piper ever going to figure out if she likes girls or boys? No, she's not going to. So, but this question continues. It's the hook. It's the great question of the show. Mr. Robot, can Elliot take down the big corporation? Okay, Game of Thrones. Which family's going to win? Every episode is about that, right? And what's the theme of Game of Thrones, by the way? Because it's kind of important. The theme is, do you have to be evil to be a great leader? Okay? That's the whole question for every episode. Right? So that's an important question. Okay, so the next one is genre. Let's not go into that because I teach that. It's a structural thing, but you need to stick in your genre. Uh, what parents are your show like? In television, if you're going to write a TV show, you got to ask yourself, what are the parents of the show? Who, what shows are like this that you've seen before? And, and my hip students, I was like, ah, Peter, I don't want to ever, ah, my show's like nothing else ever on. It's like, okay, well, then it's not going to go, it's not going to get on. And even, <laughs> even if you want it, to be completely different from everything, we need to understand what you're reacting to. What did you hate, okay? You gotta have parents for the show and it'll help you build your show if you do, okay? So then, then the next question, and, and this is super important, is, well, how do I say it? Um, what is the question that torments the hero forever, that will never be resolved. What's the unsolvable dilemma for the hero that will never ever be solved? And that is, in Mad Men, it's I am unlovable and the things I do to make myself lovable make me so uncomfortable that I run away. Don Draper seduces woman after woman after woman in Mad Men, but every time they fall in love with him, they always do, he runs away because he hasn't solved his basic dilemma, which is I'm unlovable. Okay, so that is the unsolvable dilemma, okay? Even in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's I just want to be uh, alpha bitch and be in high school and be popular. No, you're a vampire slayer. I don't want to be a vampire slayer. 150 episodes of that unsolvable dilemma, okay? Um, breaking Bad, Walt's dying, he's gotta take care of his family. How does he do it? He becomes a drug dealer and destroys his family. 
So the thing that makes him want to take care of his family, the way he does it destroys his family, okay? True Detective, Rust versus, Rust knows the world is meaningless. Marty believes there's a lot of meaning in the world. How do they resolve that? Well, they do in the end because, remember, it's a miniseries. It's like a movie. So in the end, they do both believe the world's a great place, but that's not classic TV, okay? So will Walt protect his family or destroy it? Um, will Russ view, um, how can good prevail in a world that's run by the strongest? That's Game of Thrones. How can we have a world where there's a good leader when it's the worst people who always win, right? Unsolvable dilemma. Maybe in the end, you know, the two people with the Ikea rugs on their back, they're going to learn how to do it. <laughs> but, but for the whole seven, eight years, they don't have it. So what is the irreconcilable conflict in your show? What is the dilemma that will never be resolved uh, that, that, that will keep people coming back? And obviously, that has to do with their core wound. So the next question is, what's the big core wound in your hero? How does that work in your television show? Um, and there's many different ones. Um, and, and, and it's always about that unreconcilable dilemma. Madman, I'm unlovable. Uh, Tyrion in Game of Thrones, I'm unlovable. Everything he does is because of that. Walters is, I'm weak. And my father used to say, never corner a weak man. They'll, they'll turn out to be really strong. Uh, Wade in Deadpool, by the way, because this is true also in movies, is I'm ugly. Uh, Randall in This Is Us, which is a great serial show you haven't talked much about. Randall is, I'm not part of this family, right? My skin color is different, I'm not really part of the family. Pete in Sneaky Pete, I'm not part of a family. Great core wound, Jessica Jones in Jessica Jones. I'm not safe. This villain can get me. He'll always get me. So core wounds are the nuclear reactors of your show. They really are. And they have to have Daenerys's core wound in Game of Thrones is, I'm powerless. And we see the entire first season for Daenerys. She starts out as this little sex slave for her brother. She's given to this uh, warrior as a sex object. By the end of the season, she's walked through fire and hatched dragon eggs. So her powerlessness is beginning to go away, but it will continue through the entire run of Game of Thrones. I'm powerless. Is she getting powerful? She's beginning to, but that'll take a long time. So these are just the beginnings of the questions that I would ask. There's many others, but this is a start when you're writing television. And they are different from film, but those, those start, when I would start talking to someone about their TV show, these are the questions I would ask them at the beginning. Products sell because they're great. Stories sell because the product in it is flawed, right? That's the big difference. This is the most exciting time, I think, in history for television, at least in the US. Why has TV become this explosive golden age? Susie hates me saying a golden age, but I think we are in a golden age of entertainment. And it's because now there are no constraints on what you can see in sex, what you can say. Television has no more rules. Because the stories are getting so much longer. And look, you can tell everybody is neither a good guy nor a bad guy. Everybody's got a combination of traits in them, right? Mm -hmm. So a movie can't really show you that. There's not enough time. You're either good or you're bad. So what you saw in a, in a story like True Detective is what I call going from saving a cat to killing the cat. Because that's where we are now. We are, we're constructing dark heroes that people want to watch. Why do people want to watch dark heroes? 
Television and the longer form can show both the good and the bad inside of all of us. It's a more sophisticated model of human behavior. I think we're just getting to be more sophisticated as people to know that people's stories are complex. I'm not all good. I'm not all evil. I'm mostly evil, but <laughs> there's some good in me. But that's the mix. And so longer form art can give us a com more complete picture of what humanity is about. Nobody's all good and nobody's all bad. And that's part of why superhero movies are failing because that's not us. We all know as people that we are not only good, we're also bad. And so killing the cat simply means showing us dark heroes who are like us. We can accept that. We couldn't 20, 30 years ago. Television was just about good people and really bad people. Well, now television has become more like the Russian novel of the late 19th century where Tolstoy was writing where people aren't good or bad. Everybody's a villain and everyone's a hero. So this dark hero is more like us. Television today, I think, is, is better because it's more sophisticated and actually shows us more of the world than TV did 30 years ago. You know, movies were cool because they showed us stuff TV couldn't. Movies were cool in the 70s because we could see nudity, we could see violence, we could see obscenity, we could see adult themes that TV just couldn't tackle, right? Surprise! Jamie Lannister is super evil and he's also banging his sister. Movies lost its edge over TV because now we can see all those things on TV. Right? That's part of why TV's cool. Those rules don't exist anymore. And I think when an art form is at its freest, it, it can also be at its best. It, when it's able to show everything about a society. Now, we're not there yet. There's still things we can't show on TV. Television shows us surprise. Have you ever known somebody for 15 years? Don't they just get weirder and weirder the better you know them? Finally, they're so weird you can barely take it. Well, you're just learning who they are. You're weird too, by the way, and you don't reveal it to someone at the beginning. It's a process. That's why television story works so well, and why in a lot of ways it's a more sophisticated form than movies. Television gives us characters who actually are a lot more like us in real life, and I think that's another reason TV's powerful in a way, is that we don't heal generally all in, in a month or two months. It's a lifelong process. So wounding and bleeding is kind of the way we go through life. So television shows us in a way, in a way there's more depth in television than in movies, although movies has, have, have real depth too. But we can see week after week facets and surprises of characters that we would never have time to see in a movie, right? When you can't talk about something, you can't face it. And when you can't face it, you can't heal it. And so I'm not a big fan of political correctness, and I really believe television is at its best when it doesn't have anybody saying, oh, you can't do that. No, no, no. You can't say that. No, no, no. That's that's beyond bounds. And I think sometimes we have political correctness from both left and right that are keeping our 
uh, uh, art forms from being free. And you can say all you want about Hollywood being a, a horrible place full of awful people, and it is. There's tons of terrible people there. My dad was a Southern Baptist minister. He used to rail against Hollywood, yeah? And I was just telling Dad, you know what? You're absolutely right. I've been out there. It's absolutely full of horrible, evil people. You were totally right talking in the pulpit. Yeah, man, I couldn't have put it any better. But as Milton said in Arapodagitica, you can't praise a cloistered virtue. You can't say, oh, Hollywood sucks. We've got to shut it down. They've done that in so many countries in the world. They don't have vibrant TV industries. Why is our entertainment industry, why do we sell all over the world? It's not because people love us. They hate America. You know, they think America's awful. Why does America sell all over the world? I think it's because Hollywood, for all its faults, doesn't get its money from government, doesn't have a bunch of uh, puritanical judges saying this, you can say this, you can't say this. It gets its power from people paying money to see its product. No rules no regulation uh, it's the honestly it's it's the most free market uh, product uh, produced by these warm-hearted socialists at the top of every uh, economic entertainment company they're the most cutthroat capitalists on earth that's what i love hollywood is it's anarchy at its best it has no rules so story is marching towards more and more realistic ideas of what we are as human beings. And none of us are real heroes, and none of us are real villains. We're all a mixture. Where you have no rules, you have society's gangsters move in, right? But I think that's where most great art happens. And I also think that nobody really knows how show business works. So part of the reason I think you guys do the work you do is so good is everyone's saying, you know, how does Hollywood work? Where are the rules? I want somebody to give me the way things work. And what I think you have to say to people is, that, guess what? There aren't any rules in this field. This is shadow town. This is where you have to make up your own rules. Nothing's going to be given to you. There's no school you can go get a little diploma and go, here you go, there's your showbiz degree. Now you can go get a job. Here's the field, here's the desk, here's your office. After 20 years, you get a pension. No, this is for chancers. This industry is for unhealthy people <laughs> who are deeply damaged and hurt by life. <laughs> and they wanna create story uh, for a variety of terrible reasons. But I think out of that comes the greatest art. I think it's always been that way. I, I don't know which French guy said it, but he said, art is a sewer. <laughs> and from this sewer emerges gold. And I think that's Hollywood. It's never going to be a place of healthy people doing things. And, and I don't know that you should get in it if, if your goal is to lead a, a healthy, productive life with predictable outcomes um, where at the end of your life you're going, well, that's great, I've got my pension, I'm going to retire now, I'm going to go to Florida, everything's great, I've got my health insurance, and it's fine. That, this town is not for you, and, and I, I think that's just always going to be the way it is. Art's dangerous and scary, and it's made by dangerous and scary people. <laughs> and he says, hi, Elliot, we've been waiting. 
the real villain has won and the story has just begun. This, guys, is fabulous television using all the patterns of the mystery thriller and all the patterns I've taught you right now. This is what's happening in television today. This is why television is so good. Every desire is an ability, is an attempt to sapophorize the, the, the wound, to, to, to palliate the wound. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're gonna tell me something that's gossip? Oh, I wanna hear. Why? Because it's embarrassing, it's true, and it's weird. That's every great story.